If you're new or visiting, I am Ben Burris, one of our um, pastoral interns here at MCC. As we are looking at entering Holy Week, um, we are celebrating Palm Sunday today of Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. As we look at the rest of Holy Week, we're meeting again on Thursday and Friday, like, like Pastor Todd mentioned earlier. Um, and then we're meeting again, obviously, on Easter Sunday. As we continue through this week and continue into looking at Holy Week and looking at Jesus coming into Jerusalem and moving towards being arrested, being tried, dying on the cross and rising again, we need to keep the whole week in mind. Right? Easter Sunday is not isolated from the rest of the events of the preceding week. It is all important. So as we look at our text today, we should keep in mind what's ahead of Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection. But as we get there, we need to keep in mind what happened here. Jesus is entering Jerusalem um, in an appropriate and kingly manner. And Jesus is coming to Jerusalem, we'll look at it this morning, to bring salvation to his people. He is doing things intentionally. He is doing things rightly, fulfilling scripture. And this morning we will look at how Christ is already triumphant in his entry today. We call it the triumphal entry, and that's appropriate um, because he is already triumphing. His victory is already certain. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you that we have your word, that we can read of what you did for us, and that we can see your faithfulness to fulfilling prophecies about you, your faithfulness in delivering our salvation, and the compassion and love that you have for us, Lord. Thank you, Lord, in your name, amen. Let's open by reading Matthew 21, 1 to 17. If you'll open with me, I'm going to go ahead and start. When they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, telling them, Go into the village ahead of you. At once you will find a donkey there with her foal. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, say that the Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place so that what was spoken through the prophet might be fulfilled. Tell daughter Zion, see, your king is coming to you, gentle and mounted on a donkey and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did just as Jesus directed them. They brought the donkey and its foal, and they laid their clothes on them, and he sat on them. A very large crowd spread their clothes on the road. Others were cutting branches from the trees and spreading them on the road. Then the crowds who went ahead of him and those who followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. When he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was in an uproar, saying, Who is this? The crowds were saying, 
This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. Jesus went into the temple and threw out all those buying and selling. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the chairs of those selling doves. He said to them, it is written, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of thieves. The blind and the lame came to him in the, in the temple and he healed them. When the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonders that he did, and the children shouting in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant and said to him, Do you hear what the children are saying? Jesus replied, Yes. Have you never read? You have prepared praise from the mouths of infants and nursing babies. Then he left them, went out to the city, out of the city to Bethany, and spent the night there. In this passage, we see two major scenes, right? Jesus entering, and where does he go? He goes to the temple and um, takes action there, restoring worship. Let's begin by um, considering verses 1 through 3. And we will consider how the obedience of Jesus' disciples shows his authority and that he is already victorious. As we read in verses 1 through 3, Jesus sends two of his disciples to find a donkey and his colt that he might use them for his entry into Jerusalem. What we see, even as the passage opens, is the reality that the Lord has already provided the donkeys for his disciples to receive, retrieve. There's no uncertainty. The donkeys are there. Um, and they just have to go get them. It's not going to be a difficult task. Jesus tells them what to say, even if, if someone confronts them about it. They just say, the Lord has need of them, and that's it. They will send them immediately. This is a mundane mission, really. It's just getting some animals. But they will be used for something that is not at all mundane. They will be used to declare who Christ is. He, he, that is Christ, would use the obedience of these two disciples to bring himself glory, to bring himself praise. What we see in our next passages is that the riding of these donkeys signifies the kingship of Christ. We see throughout the Old Testament as well, kings ride donkeys, rulers ride donkeys. They aren't war animals, they're peacetime animals. Leaders ride these animals. And, and Jesus is declaring himself to be a king, even with this choice of a donkey as a ride. And the disciples do it. We read in verse 6, they went and they did just as Jesus directed them. This is the appropriate response to Jesus' command. If a king asks you to do something, you do it. And if a king tells you how to do it, you do it that way. The disciples were right not to deviate from Jesus' commands. They were right not to look for other donkeys, right? Their job was to do what Jesus told them to do. The obedience of these two disciples exemplifies the authority of Christ. They do what they're supposed to do. Jesus deserves direct obedience. Jesus deserves for his followers to follow him rightly. 
And this is a moment in which we as modern Christians can see the Lord's plan for our obedience. Not only did Jesus call his disciples to do the task, he provided that they could succeed. He used this obedience and their success in this obedience for his glory. Likewise, God uses us to bring himself glory. He uses our obedience to make his name known. Like we, if we consider Jason, Jason Deroshi in Ethiopia bringing the word of God, bringing the name of Jesus to these children, right? It's obedience. Obedience is used by God. The things that the Lord has for us, they require faith and obedience. It wasn't the power of the disciples that brought the praise to Jesus. It was Jesus' power. It wasn't the efficiency with which they went and got the donkeys. It wasn't anything that they did other than obeying the word of Jesus. So too must our obedience as Christians be weighed, not in terms of grandeur or efficiency, but in faithfulness to the Lord's commands. The power and authority of Christ was displayed in the faithfulness of his two disciples. Their obedience displayed his triumph. So too is his power and eternal triumph proven in the faithfulness of the church today. We as a church have the responsibility of rightly displaying Christ. We need to show that he is a king worth serving rightly. As we move into verses 4 and 5 and look at the discussion of the prophecy... Um, Matthew says, Tell daughter Zion, See, your king is coming to you, gentle, mounted on a donkey, and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. What we see here is actually prophecies from two different prophets kind of combined. The opening line, Tell daughter Zion, is clearly drawn from Isaiah 62, while the rest, See, your king is coming to you, gentle, and mounted on a donkey, and on a colt, the foal of a donkey, is from Zechariah 9. And they are appropriately combined, um, even though Matthew says the words have spoken through the prophet might be fulfilled. They are appropriately combined to, to describe what Christ is doing here. Tied together, these two passages present a clear message that Jesus is king and that he is bringing salvation. In Isaiah 62, what is said is this, Behold, your salvation comes. Behold, his reward is with him, and his recompense is before him. This is what's told to daughter Zion, the daughter of Zion in Isaiah 62. Jesus is the king, and he is bringing salvation. And we, as we saw before, Jesus' choice of animal that he would ride in on declares this. He's directly fulfilling this prophecy. He is the king. He is coming, he is coming on a donkey, and especially on the colt. Since we can see how Jesus perfectly fulfills this prophecy in his entry, we can be assured that the rest of the promises surrounding this prophecy are true. We know that Jesus is coming, and we know that he's bringing salvation with him. We know that he's coming gently. We know that, he is, we know that he's doing everything he's supposed to be doing. Furthermore, this fulfillment tells us about the kingship of Jesus because he does not look like the kings of the world. He acts as Israel's king ought to act. He's not a man of war, but of peace. He's not concerned with wealth, 
but with the word of God. <coughs> he uses the scriptures to defend himself. He relies on the word of God. He is concerned with his word. When he's tempted in the wilderness, he relies on the word of God. When the Pharisees confront him, he relies on the word of God. And he often, and we'll see it later in this passage, says, have you not read the word of God? Because he knows it, and he knows what it means. And the, the Pharisees know the words, but they don't know what it means. They, see, they don't see the truth. Jesus uses the scriptures. Jesus is what the king should be. And while many of the Jews were looking for a king who would free them from Rome's power, they weren't looking for a king who was a spiritual savior. Thankfully, Jesus is a saving king. Thankfully, Jesus did deliver salvation to us. And he came to Jerusalem not to set himself as the temporal king, but to show humility and his love for us as he would be rejected by his people. And we'll see that he dies on the cross for our sins, right? He, he has the right to be the, the temporal king, but that's not what he's here for. That's not what his incarnation is about. Moreover, we see how Jesus comes to Jerusalem. He comes gently. In, in, in verse 5, we see he comes to them gentle and mounted on a donkey. He is not coming to conquer. He's not coming as a, a warrior, as a national liberator. But as the Lamb of God, he comes as the Prince of Peace. Zechariah 9.10, the verse after the quotation in Matthew, tells us this. I, that is the Lord, will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the horse from Jerusalem. The bow of war will be removed, and he will proclaim peace to the nations. His dominion will extend from sea to sea, from the Euphrates River to the ends of the earth. Who is the one proclaiming peace to the nations? It's the king of verse 9. It's Jesus. And as we consider the context of these verses that are cited, Matthew clearly has all of it in mind. He expects us to read this and to look back at Isaiah 62 and to look at Zechariah 9 and see what more the scriptures attest to about Jesus. Jesus is coming as one already victorious. He doesn't have to come as a warrior because he's already triumphant. Jesus is the righteous Prince of Peace, and he came to Jerusalem to deliver salvation and spiritual peace and life to his people. The fulfillment also displays that this triumph is certain. Jesus will triumph over sin and death. He will reign as our eternal king. And it's already certain. If Jesus cannot be, cannot be prevented from fulfilling Scripture as he enters Jerusalem in an appropriate and kingly manner, what will stop him from fulfilling the purposes of his incarnation? That is, the deliverance of his people from sin and death. Nothing can stop him. If, if Jesus can't be stopped from fulfilling every prophecy, every small prophecy, not that any are truly small if they test about Christ, but what's going to stop Jesus from doing what he says he's going to do? Nothing. The very animal that Jesus rides on is a source of confidence for us. 
We can read this, know that it is true, and know that everything else about Jesus, the Bible says, is true. If Christ is so unvaryingly consistent in these matters, what will cause him to fall short? Nothing. Indeed, this fulfillment of prophecy assures us all the more of his victory and triumph. For the Christian, this confidence is everything. God has made promises throughout the Bible, and all of them are kept. The Word of God is a trustworthy foundation. The Scriptures attest rightly about Jesus. Matthew asserts the fulfillment of Scripture as a clear indicator of the validity of Christ and His work. So, too, must we look at the entirety of the Word of God concerning Christ. God's Word is how we know who Jesus is. And we can be confident that Jesus did what he is supposed to do and that he is who he is supposed to be. It's important for us to recognize how these prophecies point to Jesus. And it's important to recognize how perfectly Jesus fulfills them. It is no accident that the donkeys were there. It is no accident the disciples stumbled upon them. Jesus sent them that the prophecy may be fulfilled. Jesus took actions to fulfill prophecy, to glorify God in doing so, and to help us to be more certain of our salvation. As we move to consider the actual entry, let's read verses 6 to 11 again. The disciples went and did just as Jesus directed them. They brought the donkey and its foal. Then they laid their clothes on them, and he sat on them. A very large crowd spread their clothes on the road. Others were cutting branches from the trees and spreading them on the road. Then the crowds who went ahead of him and those who followed behind shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. When he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was in an uproar, saying, Who is this? The crowds were saying, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. As we consider Jesus entering and doing these things that prophetically we see he's supposed to do, and being the king that he is supposed to be, let's consider this passage. We see that the two disciples have obeyed. We see that they bring Jesus the donkeys. They lay their clothes out on them that it will be a smoother ride for him. And we see that they are not alone. A very large crowd was present, and they, they threw their coats on the road for Jesus to tread upon as he goes. Others were cutting branches off the trees and casting them to be tread upon as well. Then we hear the words of the crowds. They call out, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. In their recognition of Jesus as the son of David, they recognize his authority. They certainly recognize that Jesus brings the Lord's deliverance, though they might not understand exactly what that's going to look like. And additionally, they recognize that Jesus is worthy of praise. He is the Messiah. We know that. And he is the king. And he must be worshipped. It is right to worship Jesus. It is right to bring him praise. Indeed, Luke's account, the Gospel of Luke, of the triumphal entry, found in Luke 19, records that there were Pharisees present with the crowd as Jesus enters. And they tell Jesus, hey, rebuke your disciples. 
they shouldn't be praising you. And Jesus responds, if they were to keep silent, the rocks would cry out. Jesus deserves to be praised. He is a worthy king and a worthy savior. This praise is right. It is necessary. They call out Hosanna, which clearly indicates that they are expecting deliverance to be brought. They're, this Hosanna, it's, it, it's kind of hard to define. It has a broad meaning, but there's certainly um, implication of salvation and deliverance. There's no doubt that they recognize that Jesus is coming from the Lord, that he is the authority, and that he will save them. He is worthy of praise for this, and their praise is right. Here's another point that is important for the church. We must recognize that Jesus is worthy. We need to praise him for who he is. We need to worship him rightly. We, as the church, do not gather for our own purposes, but to praise God. We aren't here just for fellowship, though I love fellowship. We're here to worship God together. As we then shift into verses 12 through 14, as Jesus enters the temple and throws everyone out, we'll see Jesus' focus on proper worship. Right? We've read that worship is important, but we'll see that it's doing it right is important too. Indeed, Jesus throws everyone out of the temple. Let's read that passage as well. Verse 12, Jesus went into the temple and threw out all those buying and selling. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the chairs of those selling doves. He said to them, It is written, My house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of thieves. What, we, what becomes evident as we read this passage is that people are trying to make money in the temple. There's custom to the worship in the temple. And for the crowds coming in to Jerusalem to worship at the Passover, um, it'd be hard to travel with all these things. So what's happened is people are setting up shop inside the temple courts and selling the stuff they need. Um, but we will see they're not concerned at all about rightly worshiping God. They're concerned with making money. They're concerned with glorifying themselves. There is no concern for wholehearted worship at the temple. It's business. As we view the temple in light of these Passover celebrations, like I said, it was busy. There's a big crowd coming in. Many people are traveling in. So, it's a busy time at the temple. The, in terms of efficiency, what the money changers were doing seemed to work. Right? It was easier to buy stuff in Jerusalem than to bring it with you. It was easier to meet the letter of the requirement um, with a little more money than to seek to wholeheartedly worship God. But worship is never the Lord's intent. Uh, no, I'm sorry. Worship is the Lord's intent. Forgive me. Efficiency is never the Lord's intent, intent in our worship. Efficiency is never the intent. Sincerity is true worshipfulness is. And that's what Jesus wants. 
right? He doesn't want efficiency. He doesn't want people twisting worship to serve themselves. He wants people gladly submitting themselves to worship so that they can bring glory to God. Worship isn't meant to be streamlined. It's meant to be intentional. It's meant to disrupt our normal habits so that we can stop and recognize how good God is and how worthy He is. And the money changers and the merchants and those buying and selling in the temple, as they turned a profit from worship rituals, they were robbing God of praise. We see this line, you have made it a den of robbers. You have made it a den of robbers. Not only are they turning a profit and in a sense robbing the people, they're trying to rob God of praise. They are lightening worship. And that is a bad thing. Worship, when efficiency is sought, when comfort of human is sought, it is made a lighter thing. And God's glory is not a light thing. The men in the temple had no desire to see God rightly worshipped. They wanted money and they were willing to rob God to try and get it. And when Jesus arrives, he throws these men out. He drives them away, flipping their tables over, because they are not worshiping God rightly. He sees that temple worship has been twisted so that it serves men and not the Lord. And so Jesus restores that. He removes these robbers. And then who comes in? In order to make things a house of praise again, a house of prayer, who comes in? The blind and the lame. Jesus sends out the people you would expect in the temple, and he brings in blind people who, though they can't see, know that Jesus is their salvation. And the lame people who, though they can't follow well physically, their hearts are turned to look to Jesus. And Jesus brings them in and heals them of their physical ailments. And how much more is Jesus healing them of their sin, healing them of their spiritual unbelief? Jesus brings these people in to restore worship. Jesus welcomes in the poor, or not the poor, the, the lame and the blind. Um, and here we see that Jesus is triumphant over the restoration of worship. Right? We see that Jesus is victorious here. Right? It is a good thing, it is a necessary thing for Jesus to be rightly praised, for the temple to serve God properly. And Jesus restores that. And in doing so, he reminds us how important right worship is. He, 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 he makes it clear that there is a right way to do things. And for us, as we consider that, because we don't go to the temple and, and make animal sacrifices anymore, we don't have to bring the right coin, um, what does right worship look like? It looks like humility. And, and our congregational worship and the participation in the Lord's Supper and baptism, right? These are the things that Jesus told us to do regarding our worship. Right? It's just to faithfully follow Him, to have our hearts aligned with Him, trusting in Him as our hope and assurance. Worship needs to be taken seriously. 
we need to recognize that the worship of the holy God is no light thing. It must not be shaped to serve people. Worship of God must reflect God. Worship is worthless if it is not wholeheartedly focused on God. And we see the right worship of God in verse 15. The children in the temple, seeing, um, seeing the wonders that Jesus is doing, the children say, Hosanna to the son of David. And we'll see in a minute the Pharisees say, stop it. But the children are worshiping Jesus rightly. And the Pharisees and the chief priests, they aren't going to do so. As we shift to look at that, our final section here, let's go ahead and read it as well. When the chief priest and the scribes, says verse 15, saw the wonders that he did, and the children shouting in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant and said to him, Do you hear what these children are saying? Jesus replied, Yes. Have you never read? You have prepared praise from the mouths of infants and nursing babies. Then he left them, went out of the city of Bethany, and spent the night there. As Jesus is being rightly praised and restoring worship in the temple, the chief priests are mad. They are indignant because the normal habits have been disrupted. The Passover is a busy time, surely a stressful time for the chief priests to make sure everything goes right to make sure everything looks good, to make sure there aren't disruptions. So they are on edge, certainly, especially with the disruption Jesus is making as he's coming in to Jerusalem. But we see that Jesus' disruption is right. We see that the money changers needed to be thrown out, that right worship of God in the temple needed to be restored. And the chief priests are indignant about it. They see Jesus healing people in the temple. They see children praising him, and they can't stand it. They, and so they confront Jesus. And they say, Haven't, don't you hear them? Why don't you tell them to stop? And much like we saw in Luke, Jesus says, if they didn't worship me, the rocks would cry out. And here Jesus says, obviously they're going to be worshiping me. Haven't you read haven't you read you have prepared praise from the mouths of infants and nursing babies? Don't you know the scriptures, chief priests? Don't you know the word of God? And how can't you see how this applies to me? Don't you see, chief priests, that Jesus is the Messiah? But they do not. The chief priests could see and were well acquainted with the scriptures, but they couldn't see who Jesus was. The blind and the lame, they couldn't see but they could see who Jesus was. They could worship Jesus rightly, even though they were physically inhibited. And here we see, we see this, this example in this, this contrast of the chief priests against the blind. Um, the chief priests aren't on the right side of things. They need to be corrected. They need to be rebuked. And we see as Jesus rebukes them, he uses scripture. They say, don't you hear the children? And he says, haven't you read the word of God? Don't you know this is supposed to happen? Don't you know the children are supposed to worship God? And here, like we mentioned before, we see that Jesus relies on the word of God. His defense is always the word of God. 
And what stronger foundation is there than that? So Jesus rebukes the chief priests who don't, don't get it, who are indignant that appropriate praise is happening, that Jesus is being made much of. They're mad about it. And the chief priests are supposed to be the people helping bring the people closer to God. They're supposed to be helping the, the Jews to, to draw close to God, to facilitate proper worship, but they're inhibiting it. They're mad that their normal habits have been interrupted. For us in the church, we need to consider this too. Are we so concerned with habits and the way things have been done that we are neglecting to praise God rightly? This must never happen. We need to even be considerate and evaluating what we do and whether we're serving God rightly. Always focused on Him and never ourselves. We can't allow bad habits, <coughs> forgive me, or the disruption of praise to occur, let alone to habitually occur. Especially not for the purpose of preventing awkwardness or protecting pride. There's no room for that in the worship of God. And there's certainly no virtue in, in trying to manage these things in a balanced way. There's no balance to be made between worshiping man and worshiping God. And make no mistake, if we are worshiping, if we are not wholeheartedly worshiping God, then worship of man is happening. So, we as the church need to be able to recognize our shortcomings and resolve them. We need to be able to address what we do, look at it, and say, yes, we are rightly worshiping God. Or, I think we need to adjust things so that we are. Because our job as the church is to worship God. Our role is to bring Him praise, to make His name known, to obey Him. And Jesus, as He triumphantly rebukes these uh, chief priests, we see that it's not pride of it's not his pride that is doing so. It is his passion for God to be worshipped rightly. It was necessary for Jesus to be praised. He is God. And Jesus is concerned with the praise of God. As we close, let's look at four points of application. Number one, our obedience declares Christ's triumph. Like we mentioned before, we as followers of Christ's, we're the ones that have been commissioned to reflect Jesus in the world. We must rightly display him. Our obedience to Christ reveals him and his character. Does our obedience, does our obedience rightly display the victory and triumph of Christ? If not, then we need to rectify that. We need to realign ourselves to be in right orientation with Christ and his commands, ever more faithful. Number two, trust the word of God. Jesus' fulfillment of scriptural prophecy and his usage of scripture has, as his defense against those who oppose him makes it clear that we can be confident in God's word. There is no sure foundation in the scriptures. We must also use the scriptures as our defense. Any human wisdom is going to fall very short compared to the Word of God. Christians can trust the Word of God. The Scriptures assure us of Christ's triumph. 
and the assurance of the salvation that he brings us, of the hope that he's assured for us, we can trust the scriptures. Number three, our worship must be worthy of the God that we serve. God is holy, and our worship of a holy God is a serious thing. It must reflect God's worthiness. It must display his glory. Any worship that is shaped to serve man is no worship at all. God demands worship that is intentional, wholehearted, and faithful. It is good for worship to be encouraging and a source of our joy, especially congregational worship as we gather and get to do it together. It should be a source of joy. But the only goal of worship truly is to praise God. It's not to encourage ourselves. That's a byproduct of praising the Holy God. God is worthy. We must declare that worthiness. Our worship must be worthy of the God that we serve. And number four, be encouraged by the triumph of Christ. Christ has already triumphed. For us, he's delivered our salvation. He, has, he died on the cross. He rose again. He's in heaven. For us, it's already won. But even, in, even before, where we're at in our passage, this is before Jesus died on the cross, his triumph is already sure here too. There was never uncertainty. And there's no surer source of encouragement than the certainty of Christ's triumph. He's done it. He's achieved everything that needs to be achieved. We get to rest in his triumph. We get to relish in his victory. All we have to do is put our hope in him and live obedient, faithful lives and rest in that salvation. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your triumphal entry into Jerusalem. Thank you for the sacrifice that you would bring. Thank you for your death and resurrection, assuring salvation for us. But Lord, we, also thankful, we are also thankful that you were triumphant even here. There is no uncertainty. There is no doubt. You were going to do all that you promised. You fulfill scripture. You assure us of our hope. You are everything that we need, Lord. In your name, amen. Thank you so much, Ben, for expounding on Christ's triumphal, and we stress, triumphal entry into uh, Jerusalem. Uh, as Ben was preaching, I was thinking about worship, you know, worshiping rightly, worshiping Christ, worshiping uh, how we do things, and, and this is a part of our worship that we'll be participating in together. It's the Lord's Supper. Uh, Pastor Todd had mentioned earlier in our worship service uh, that if you are a born-again believer, uh, have put your trust in Jesus Christ, been baptized, feel free to participate with us. Uh, there are cups in the back foyer. If you have not picked one up, I highly encourage you uh, to do that um, as well. So thinking about the Lord's Supper, uh, we're going to continue uh, in Matthew 